With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're home alone. You have an uneasy feeling in the darkness. Like someone or something is watching you. Why is it suddenly cold in this room? You hear footsteps, whispers, or even laughter. <laughs> You go to check. You feel a presence behind you. And then the fear sets in. I'm K-Town, and you're listening to Paranormal Fears. I had been a, a deputy coroner for eight and a half years, and through the years of uh, being in this field, we didn't have debriefing, at least in the where I was working, the county. And so, of course, that type of job, you, a deputy coroner or a coroner, a coroner is an elected official. A deputy coroner is uh, hired and sworn in. So we were, we are paged out, or were, I was, past tense, paged out to um, any unwitnessed or suspicious death. We're paged to the scene, which is a crime scene. The body is under the control of the coroner, or the possession of the, the coroner, and then the crime scene is controlled by the, the police. And in unison, we all work together. So we'd be paged out on uh, car fatalities, suicides, homicides, fires, drownings, all, you know, may, many tragic endings uh, to people's lives. And so through all of those cases, it was a lot to absorb. It's a lot of gore. It's a lot of uh, things that I hope that people don't ever witness. And so you can't go home after your the, your day of working or your evening of working and sit down with the family at the dinner table and talk about your day, right? So I needed an outlet and I would start writing like notes, more like the emotions I was dealing with, what the families were dealing with. And it was my way of processing in in compartmentalizing everything and trying to store it at the back of my mind, because otherwise it would be too much. It would overtake my own happiness because I was surrounded by so much death and grief. And from that, I, all of the notes that I took through the years, um, like I said, it was my way of debriefing and dealing with it with all of the, um, tragedy that I'd I'd been surrounded by. And about a year ago, two years ago, actually, I uh, lost my job through the pandemic, which was I was actually also in in corporate travel, had been for like 30 years. I've always been very in. I've always enjoyed travel and anything with like a medical background or law enforcement. So I was doing a little bit of both. But anyhow, I had uh, lost my job in the travel business because people weren't traveling. And I started putting those notes together. And I thought, if I can write a book and share it with anybody that will read and just so that they have an idea, like they can uh, look into my world and see what I went through th through the years and hopefully out of that, maybe have a different outlook on life right. such that uh, life is precious and every day that you wake up is a gift and to never take any moment for granted. And also with the book along the way, the notes that I took <laughs> on uh, spirits that would follow me home and they would um, 
through the years, many things would happen, paranormal, uh, spiritual, and would also help would happen with my sons as well. And that's how the book came about. You have no idea how big my smile just got when you said spirits follow you home. I have, this is unreal. Okay. So, you know, I do, I do a lot of interviews, but never with a deputy coroner who says that they experience paranormal activity in connection with their job. So this is like, this is an eye opener. Okay. So I want to, and I'm going to take you back to what happened to your sons too. I mean, do you mind talking about that later on? You know, when I not at all. Okay. No, good. All right. So you, okay. So you were in the travel business for 30 years. How did you become a coroner? I mean, how did that transition happen? Well, what happened was I was going through a divorce and our son have two sons. And so every other weekend they would be with their dad. And I wanted to do something on the weekends that would be constructive. You know, you find yourself all of a sudden, with this free time and, you know, there's many things you can do, but for me, I wanted to do something to help the community, something that I'd feel good about myself because I wasn't feeling good about everything else that was going on at that point in time in my life and my personal life. And, uh, I knew someone, or I actually worked with someone who was on a team, a victim crisis response team. And they're all volunteers. They work with five police departments. So in, and they go out, they're paged out on calls ranging from domestic abuse up to death. And so I interviewed for a position in front of a panel of law enforcement and I was, um, I was accepted. And then I went through training for about nine or 10 months. And then was given a pager. And so any chance, any time that you're available and the pager goes off, um, you answer it, you go to the call. And like I said, it was anything from um, domestic. You might help a family that has gone through whatever, whatever has transpired on this case while the police are doing what they need to do. And you might, <clears throat> excuse me, make phone calls or, um, you know, to call family, friends, maybe make pots of coffee, hand out teddy bears to the children, anything just more on a, uh, an emotional level to help these people when they'd be going through whatever it was they were. And through that, it, when there were cases where there were deaths involved, it seemed like so often I would be asked if I would help to physically remove the body. And I was always interesting. afraid of death. I was intrigued, but I was afraid, you know, and through those cases, I did get to know some of the coroners in, in the surrounding counties and one in particular had seen how I was with families and we struck up a conversation one day and I told him that if he was ever considering hiring on another deputy, I had some, a little bit of a medical background, but again, my, my forte or my background was mainly uh, corporate travel. I had worked as a medical assistant for a couple of nephrologists. They worked with kidney, diabetes. I'd worked at a hospital. These were part-time jobs. I worked full-time in travel and then part-time in the medical field. And about a year later, the coroner of one county uh, called me and said he was considering hiring on. And I followed him for another maybe nine months on all of these cases. I think he was checking to see how I could handle these different scenes that we went on. So, so he, and, he, he wanted to test probably your mental, yeah. you know, your mentality, you know, how you would actually handle seeing something that was pretty traumatic. Yes. Okay. And so after about nine or 10 months, he offered me the position I was sworn in handed all of my supplies and off I went. Wow. Let me, let me, let me stay there with you for one moment. Okay. So I don't know what that is. I mean, I don't know what that feels like. And I I don't think personally I could do that job, but can you Mm kind of give us, you know, uh, a glimpse into your mind and your mindset and some of the thoughts that were running, you know, just through your mind when you were looking at something pretty gruesome and, and can you tell us about, something that stuck with you early on that you were like, I don't know if I could do this or not, if that happened to you. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, my first call 
on my own. And it was in the winter and I was up on the um, highway and I got a flat tire. I was paged out for a suicide. And I thought, oh my God, my first call, <laughs> I've got a flat tire. Well, when I, I called my boss and told him what had happened, he said, that's okay, we'll wait, which was really surprising. But, and he was waiting for me because he was going to oversee what I, you know, with the first call. And when I got there, the only thing that I can't, comes to mind when the door opened, of course, my tire was fixed, right? And then off I went. But when I opened the door and all the police were standing in the room and uh, my boss and it was like time stood still. And I write about that in the book. Time stood still because there was the, the decedent was on the floor. He had gone down into like a, uh, a cubby hole in his closet in his bedroom and he with a high powered rifle not to get too much in because I'm reliving it and it's hard to do that, you know, the visual, but he uh, ended his life. And uh, so they had in waiting for me to get there, they had pulled him out of that hole. Now, had I gotten there on time when I should have, I would have been down in that hole also helping to pull him out on my first call. And he uh, was missing most, well, half of um, his head. And so I just, I stood still. And all I could think of is this is, this is actually a real, this is a person. This person was breathing and laughing and, and hopefully, and, you know, had thoughts and made dinner today. And now I'm looking down and, and it doesn't even, you, you can't recognize half his, his face is gone. And so uh, it, it reminded me of, which is horrible in comparison, but the Wizard of Oz, you know, when the house is twirling around and it's all in black and white and then it drops down and she goes out the door, Dorothy goes, walks out the door and it's all in color. Well, mine was the opposite. Everything was all in color because I'm oblivious to what I'm going to. And then once I opened that door, it all went black and white. And stood still. And it was only seconds, you know, for me to regain my composure. All I could say was, oh, my God. And there was silence because they knew that this was my first call. And that had, it was to, be almost like, that had to be nerve wracking. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's your first call. You know, mm -hmm. they're looking at you and looking at your your reaction, reaction. to what you're seeing. Yes. Right, right, right. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it re and also like when you have to go through go through something, let's say surgery, and you want to run, you want to turn and run as fast as you can, but you know, you can't. That's how I felt yeah, <laughs> at yeah. that moment. You know, it was um, very surreal. And after we were done doing the investigation and transported the body to um, <clears throat> do what we needed to do there at the morgue and I went home, you're thinking about it all of the way home. And it's like, did I really just experience what I experienced? And then I'm thinking, I'm not going to be able to sleep again. How am I going to sleep? I can't get this out of my mind. I mean, I don't even, you can watch movies like that, right? On the big screen on TV. Yeah. But it's nothing compared to being surrounded by death, feeling it, smelling it, touching it. I could feel his soul there. It was just, it was, as I put in the book, um, I'm sorry, I'm probably not going to be quoting it uh, exactly how I said it. No, you're book, good, you're fine. Like, However you remember that, it's fine. Thank you. It's like you're there to see the final curtain drawn to someone's life. Yeah, yeah. He was just, he was despondent because he'd gone over or had gone through a divorce and he just couldn't see going on living. And so he ended his life. That is a sad ending. Um, oh my God! Yes. Can you give me a little bit of of overview uh, as to what you guys do to process the body at the at the scene there? If you don't mind. Yes. So when there is a body, a body, um, people call the police or they found find a body. The coroner is paged out. That body is not moved or um, you know touched. They wait until the coroner gets there. The coroner then pronounces the time of death. 
as soon as you see the, you know, you're at the body. And then we will um, go over, look at the body, you know, check for markings or um, just lividity, which is when the body, let's say the body died and they're on their back, but you find that the blood, the there's blood that has pooled and you know purple on the stomach, then that body might have been moved because when the heart stops pumping, the blood will end up right goes to wherever spot is flat, is. yeah, touching the ground, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, so we pronounce the time of death. We examine the body. We'll draw fluids for toxicology, whether it's blood, urine, or vitreous. Vitreous is from the eye. We determine whether there should be an autopsy. Now, if it's a case where the detectives come in and um, it is suspicious, then once we pronounce the time of death, I would step back. I'm going to speak for myself in the county that I worked in. I would step back and then let the police need to do what they need to do. They're investigating. And one and the detectives. And so once that's been completed, uh, the body, then we have the funeral directors come on scene. Of course, we notify the family. There's a lot of photos taken. It's like putting a puzzle together. You're going to see if there's any mail that's still in the mailbox. If there's, you know, just if you can kind of um, add up to how that person ended up, again, depending on the circumstances, how that person ended up dead, wherever they are, let's say in their home. Uh, Of course, notify family, question anyone that in the area, neighbors, friends, um, to see when they last spoke with that person. So uh, if the body, if we do determine that there should be an autopsy, then the body is transported to uh, the morgue for autopsy. Or if, if there is nothing suspicious, then we will, we again have control of the body. So we wait for the funeral home or the funeral directors to arrive. And then uh, you still have control of the body. And then the body is put up on the gurney. They transport the body to the funeral home. We also sign death certificates, the cause of death. We sign uh, authorization forms for cremation. Uh, We might need to gather medical records, talk to doctors, talk to family about helping to set up for organ, and not organ procurement. Well, that's if they're in a hospital um, and they're on life support and they're not going to make it. So organ procurement or tissue donation. Uh, attend autopsies and, you know, just observe. We're standing off to the side while the pathologist is doing the autopsy and taking notes for the case. Oh, really? Okay. I didn't know that. Okay. And and so yeah. is that normally you by yourself or do you have another person in there helping you taking the notes or maybe assisting in that or or how does that go? Well, the autopsies that I attended for cases that I'd had, and I actually went to a couple of others that were not my cases, but I um, was there to witness the autopsy. There would be a detective that would be there. And of course, you have the the autopsy assistants and the pathologists. So usually uh, with cases, there would be a, te- a detective that was on the case that would also be there observing and taking notes. Got you. This was really powerful what you said. I mean, um, the moment you stepped in there, your first case, when mm-hmm. you had the, um, I guess you, you just in that moment, after, even after you, after you left that scene, you were thinking to yourself, you know, did I just see that? And probably, you know, I think you, you actually said how you were so thankful throughout the years, even, um, and thinking back, you know, how blessed you are just to be alive, you know, and no Mm -hmm. one, you know, especially, I don't think anyone, uh, a coroner would realize that more than just a common everyday person because of what you, you have to do for your, for your living. Um, Mm -hmm. did you ever consider quitting? You know, I did not because I felt very empathetic and, I wanted to be there 
for the community. I wanted to help the loved ones that were left behind that were dealing with this tragedy. And it wasn't just a job for me. So I would, depending on, you know, if I wasn't paged out right away to another call, I would sit with um, the loved ones and ask them questions about their loved one that had just uh, passed away because I wanted them to know that it wasn't just another body for me. It was their loved one and I was going to respect them. And I always treated every decedent with dignity and respect. Like if it was a situation where there wasn't anything suspicious and the family wanted to go in and see their loved one uh, to say goodbye, like if they hadn't seen that their loved one yet, I would uh, clean their face up and maybe put a pillow under their head and a blanket over them just to make it a little less traumatic. It was still going to be traumatic, you know, but I wanted it to be. You Oh, OK. Uh, wait. So 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 you would do this for the the deceased, for the family, for the deceased. Yes. Yes. And um, it was so for me. I wanted, I knew that my heart was in the right place and, and I was, as I said, always respectful because I wanted them to know that their loved one meant something, their, their life was valued and it, they weren't just, oh, there's a body. I'm not saying any other corner, anyone else is that way. It's just for me because I, I would want myself or my loved ones to be treated the same way because it's, it's it's like the darkest hours in your life when someone passes away you know the tragedy it's very traumatic and even though there are many times I'll be out in public and somebody will say you look familiar some of them I might say yes you do too but can't quite place where and there are times I remember where but I'm not going to bring it up because if they don't remember, of course, I'm, you know, I don't want to remind them. Right, right. Uh, if they don't remember my face. And so it was for the families. I didn't want to give up. I I wanted to be there for them. I totally understand that. I do understand that. Um, let's let's talk about um, there's one in your book is called Youthful Recklessness. And that's chapter okay. four. Can you tell us about that? You know, I told you my very first case, my very first call, the suicide. Yeah. And uh, so I probably got home, I'm guesstimating because it's been a while, but um, maybe let's say one o'clock in the morning. So at five, five thirty in the morning, I get another call from my boss. You did good last night. We've got another call. It's a fatality. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I I'm not laughing because it was funny. I'm laughing thinking, oh, what have I gotten into? Right, you know? Right. And um again, it was February, so it was freezing out. It was like twenty below with the wind chill. I'm thinking, can I wear mittens? I can't wear minutes mittens. I'm gonna have to wear gloves. It's gonna be so cold out there. She was out in the country. It was a young, young female. She was coming home from a bar and uh, was only like maybe a mile and a half to two miles from her home. She lost control of her vehicle. She was alone. She hit trees and she was there for the rest of, well, until the morning when someone passing by saw the vehicle. And when I arrived and they were waiting for me, we had to trudge through the snow to get to the vehicle and she was frozen solid and her arm was up because when she went forward and so we had to pull her out of the wreckage mm -hmm. and carry her out of the field but um yep she was frozen in place it was and then what was she in to, or outside the car she was inside the car okay mm -hmm. and so then we took her to the nearest funeral home and I took her necklace off of her neck. And many of those calls when we had to go for notification to let the family know was harder than the working the case. I mean, it was all extremely emotional and difficult, but to knock on a door and 
for the loved ones to open the door and then they, you know, they make eye contact. They've kind of had, have that, that confused look. And then they look down and they'd see on your jacket corner was uh, very difficult. It just ripped at your, it tugged at your heart. And then to hand over their loved ones or a piece of jewelry or some article and tell them that um, their child or their loved one had been in a fatality or a car wreck and didn't make it, it was tough. So you guys were tasked to do that. I mean, you would go to the house and, or or would the police do that? Well, depending on the case, there were times when, see, with this uh, particular case, the uh, decedent was was uh, transported to the funeral home. Um, there was going to be um, fluids drawn for toxicology. She was alone in the vehicle. And so she was at the funeral home. So the body was in the morgue. And then we went to the family. There are cases where I, I couldn't leave the body. And the police would be doing the notification. So it just depended on the case and the circumstances. So have you have you come across? I'm I'm asking you this because you you also hear about this on movies or you see it on movies a lot, a lot when they when they go in to um, look at a crime scene. You know, they'll put some kind of special something on their nose if if the body's been there for a long time, hopefully it will help mm-hmm. them with the smell. I mean, do you guys come across stuff like that and and have to do something yes. to try to alle- keep yourself from being sick or whatever from the smell? I always had Vicks with me, Vicks VapoRub. Oh, so rub. Okay, it's Vicks. Okay, it's Vicks that they're rubbing. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yes. And then there was one call, one case that I went on that... When I pulled up to the parking lot and the police were standing outside and the first thing that one of them did was hand me some liquid peppermint, I knew it wasn't going to be good. (laughs) So um, that was so peppermint. A lot of people will use peppermint, but I use Vicks and a mask. What Mm -hmm. does, can you describe it? I mean, what does death smell like? Smell like? Yeah. I've been asked that before, and it's so hard to describe. But the only thing that comes to mind that I can that I can say is that it it reminds me of bitter, rot, rotting flesh. Like uh, you know, say when there's an animal that's been out in the sun for a while. It's a smell, it's a distinct smell, and once you've smelled it, you will never forget it. And I would, with the spirits, they would, in different areas of where I'd be, I it would, that smell would come into the room, and I knew that there was someone there. It's so hard to describe. I would love to hear what other people say, what their description is, but I can only think of rotting, bitter. Wow. Very pungent. Uh, that's all that comes to mind. I can't even describe it. Yeah. Um, okay, so let me ask you this. Um, I know that drowning victims, you know, sometimes, you know, they're be pretty bad when you recover the body. Um, mm-hmm. You do have a, a chapter in your book here. You talk about the Hudson River. Bloated Blues oh, yeah. is the name of it. So you tell us about that. Well, I was a little girl when uh, I experienced that. And I was, our family, we, my mother was from Ireland. And so we have a lot of family over there. And we would spend uh, every other summer, maybe about six weeks over in, in Ireland with family. And I had an aunt and an uncle that lived in New York. And so many times we would, on our way over the pond, we would stop and spend a few days with them. But we had, as a family, had gone swimming uh, one day. And my sister and I were out, not out far, because I'd say we were, oh my God, I don't know, maybe, I can't remember how old we were. We were little, eight, 12. Sorry, I can't remember, but... 
we were in the water and some kids that were not far from us, maybe uh, 20, 30 feet from us, swam into a, a bloated body. And so, of course, um, police were called. And they came and they, the well, people had pulled the body up onto the shore and it laid there on the rocks was for a, a while. Was it a male or female? It was a male. A male. Mm. Yes. So I'm just thankful that it was hard enough seeing that as a child, but it would have been more difficult if I'd swam into a body. Yeah. I think. That is you a know? nightmare. Yeah, that's a nightmarish scenario right there. Yeah. Um, okay, let's talk about, um, you know, I do a lot of paranormal um, interviews as well. And yes. some of the psychic mediums that I interview say that if victims die, you know, in a tragic way, maybe it's in an accident, it's really fast, that mm-hmm. from there experience some of them are just confused and they don't realize that they have died and you said that spirits have followed you home before so i want to get your experience in telling me if that was from an accident you know something happened really fast or was it like a suicide what were the causes causes of deaths where you feel like a spirit has followed you home from a certain location Okay. Well, first off, um, there were many souls that were apparently following, and I say apparently because the first few years, things would happen, but I just thought, oh, it must be part of the job. I then had uh, people that connect, tell me, connect with spirit, tell me that, well, you're going on all of these cases, and they're tragic. They are unexpected, and so the decedent they're confused. They don't realize that they're dead or they're not ready to, to go. They don't know what to do. And so because I was so compassionate on the scene and kind to them and, and to their loved ones, that they followed me. Many didn't cross over my threshold as in into my home, but many did and apparently um, followed me and stayed around me. I don't know why they would, but this is what I was told by people that connect with spirits. Or with spirit. And so, with the ones, the many that would follow me home, things would happen in our home. For example, um, orbs bouncing, or I had, and this is in my book, there was one weekend where the book, my sons were not home, they were with their dad. And uh, I had just gone to bed. And you know how you feel like somebody's looking at you. You just have that feeling. And I opened my eyes and there was a, an angry man above me looking down at me. And I quick threw the blankets over my face, my head, because I thought my rational thinking was somebody just broke in you know, and he's standing over me. But then I thought, well, I can't be under the blankets. I have to see what he's going to do. And so I pulled the blankets back down. He was still bouncing, looking above me. It was a head. It was kind of in a sphere at the back of his head. No body. And then he just slowly turned and shot across the room. Of all of the spirits that I've ever seen through the years, I have never recognized one of them. Really? And I... I asked mediums about that because people have asked, well, did you recognize from one of your cases? No, I never have. And they said, well, uh, they, as in the mediums, have told me that they don't always look how they looked when they passed away. It could be a different part of their life. But the thing is, um, many of the spirits that would um, actually show themselves in front of me they were older. They looked older. There were some younger ones, but uh, I never. Older, honestly, like never in a senior. I mean, you know, what would be considered a senior citizen? Old or how old? Senior, like eighty. Senior. Okay, got you. Okay. Elderly. Yes. Okay. But I have also had spirits that um, appeared in front of me that were maybe I'm guessing, you know, let's say fifties or sixties. 
tell us okay but, tell me some instances where and and did it and did they happen right after you left the scene i mean did that ever happen like you come home and then there are spirits standing in your house or something like that i mean how would it happen days afterwards or tell me about that it that's the thing. It was ongoing. So I don't know when they were showing up from. It was just, it became uh, a constant thing. Not constant as in daily, but uh, it might happen every couple of weeks. And you know that I have not been a deputy since 2015, and it has become more active for me. Than it was through, well, it was always through the years, but I continue to have spirits come to me. Really? And, and the reason I'm bringing this up and I'm jumping here, I'm sorry, is that you asked how often or how, how often after a case. I, in, since last September, I had had where things were, there was paranormal activity nonstop. Um, some weeks it was a few times a week, but it was like every week. And I've had so many things. As a matter of fact, I have a second book I'm writing and I'm more focusing on the experiences of the paranormal since being a deputy. So they continue to come to me. I've been told because I'm trying to understand and learn as much as I can why now in my lifetime, I'm in tune with the spirit world. And I was told, well, you, I probably always would have was able, anybody can do it if you're tuned in, you know, in, in tune or tuned in. And because of the years that I was a deputy uh, and again, being compassionate, I was told I was like a beacon of light that these spirits are coming to me. And, and I, let, let me ask you something about what you see visually are you seeing mm-hmm. them as solid spirits or are they like, you know, translucent? I mean, or, or do you see the outline of them? How clearly are they coming through to you? Clear. I, I, for months, I wake up at three in the morning. And if you, and I'm sure with all your interviews, People have talked about the, the I'm quoting, bewitching hour between three and four, I think it is. I wake up every morning about three, three fifteen. And many times when I, I just open my eyes, like I'm wide awake and there will be a face maybe about four or five feet in front of me looking at me. Or a couple of weeks ago, I had the uh, swirling. This is the first time in all of 12, 13 years that I've been experiencing spirit world that there was actually a a mist and it was twirling very slow. And it was maybe about a foot to a foot and a half from the top to the bottom. And it was like the color of a, a, a whitish gray, like cremains, like ashes, right? And it, the top was swirling in one direction and the bottom was swirling in another. And I just laid there staring at it like, what in the world? I've never seen that before. And then it kind of swirled off across the room. So the room was um, pretty dark. And I thought, oh, if I only had taped that, nobody's going to believe me. But you know what? Maybe there, maybe it's still in the room here. So I grabbed my phone now, I'm not real tech savvy or you know, smart with the, the phone stuff, but I didn't know how to turn on the light. So when you're videotaping, there's a light shining, right? So I just videotaped in the dark. I just started it playing and then I went from across from one side to the other and then back again. I started to replay it and I thought, eh, it looks black. I don't think there's anything there. So I put it back down and then it took me a while and I fell back asleep. The next day, I thought I'd check that video out and then probably delete it. And as I'm watching it, going through it, there were orbs. And I, um, what do you call that? I copied it. You know, I stopped it and copied it and then enlarged it. And you actually see a, a man's face. So it was, there were orbs. The, the mist, I had someone there that was with the mist. And then he shot across the room. And uh, was in a, a very bright orb, and I thought, 
okay, uh, I don't have anything at that part of my bedroom that would be, and I actually po- I did a video on TikTok. I've been doing a lot of videos on TikTok of my experiences and uh, I have it on there. And then I sent to my sons to say, will you look at that and see if you can enlarge it? I see a face. Do you see a face? And uh, my one son, son said he actually saw two faces. So that's one example. Or I'll have uh, or I'll have the faces right in front of me. Okay, describe the faces in front of you. Are they, you know, are are they white, black? Do they? I mean, can you tell the race or tell me a little bit about? Describe the face to me. Male, female. What is it? Male and female. Um, I've had them where they've been elderly, like the eighties. Well, I'm guessing, you know, like older. Um, some have been in their fifties or sixties. And then there was actually one uh, about two months ago that looked like he was in his forties, but I don't know if that was maybe my guardian angel. That's a whole nother topic to talk about or my spirit guides. Is it, are they, are they just that? Is it just a face just floating there? Look, I mean, cause you're laying in bed. So, mm-hmm. I mean, or is it a, a whole body kneeling down, looking at you kind of give us some details <laughs> about what's happening there? Sure. It's usually it's just a face. The young one that was in his, I'd say around his forties, uh, was his face and his upper torso. I have also witnessed the shadow man. That was scary. That's an actual whole shape of uh, a body, but it's a shadow. Now, people have said that Mm. the shadow man they've seen has a top hat. The one that I've seen twice was, did not have a top hat, but it's, I mean, the thing, the thing, excuse me, the, the, the man, the shadow man sauntered into the room and turned and faced me and then slowly turned and sauntered back out. One of the times it was like actually the next day after my dad had passed away. But usually they're either orbs or mist or the face, or like I said, the face to the the shoulders, you know, the upper shoulders, neck and the face, the head. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, are they trying to talk to you or something or are they just looking at you? They're just looking at me. And that's when, you know, I'm looking back like with eyes like saucers. Because I do have, you know, they're looking at me staring with wide eyes and I'm staring. <laughs> I mean, we laugh now, but I'm you're not, you're you, not screaming scary. or trying to get out of the house or anything like that. You're not, you're have not, you, ever you, been you don't so seem frightened. frightened is why I'm saying that. Well, I really am, honestly, to be uh, truthfully, it, it's scary. As many times as this has happened, it's like, if you could warn me you're coming in, <laughs> you're going to wake me up. I'm laughing, but it's really, it's not funny. It it frightens me. And there were times when I think to myself, oh my God, my heart's like, blah, 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 blah. I thought I'm going to have a heart attack and nobody's going to know why I had this heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just going to be, ah, she, you know, went in her sleep. Yeah, that was after I saw a spirit or two, but it's scary. Um, I also was told by mediums and psychics that I thought when spirit would, uh, they, you know, your ancestors, your loved ones, they come in there, they're, you're surrounded by them, right? They're around you. But I didn't realize that whatever spirits are around you are actually around you 24 seven. I went through October was very difficult this past October. September, October, and November was very difficult. October is the month, you know, with Halloween, but it's the month that they say they as in people that the mediums and psychics and um, people that are very knowledgeable in that spirit world, that the veil is very thin. Now, the veil is the, the veil between the living and the dead. And I had so much activity going on that um, I was with the holy water. I had crystals. I was 
I went to church to be blessed. I was praying uh, because it was constant. And I woke up one morning and I had fingerprints, marks across my cheek of my face. That was very frightening. It was scary. And for people that are in the, that are mediums and psychics and people in this, that deal with the spirits, they're used to that. They know how to handle those things. But for me, uh, I, and being jumpy as it is, for me, the years that I worked as a deputy coroner, it um, affected me in a way that I'm, I'm very jumpy. You know, like microwaves go off and I jump, you know, it's, I was told I have some post-traumatic stress that everybody that's been in the death industry to some degree has to have some kind of post-traumatic. And so for me with these spirits showing up and you don't know when the dark entities or the, the, the dark are trying to come around, I'm doing all I can to protect myself. And not like you can go to a regular doctor and say, doctor, I need some, I need help. You know, yeah, they might think you need help, but it's not what you really need. Yeah. Um, So I've reached out to friends that, that connect with spirit and I'm trying to stay as protected as I am and being very respectful to spirit world. So I don't upset them. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I think it's just common sense that anyone that's had a job like you is going to have some post-traumatic stress naturally. Yep. I mean, because this is just not normal. To I mean, you know what I'm right. saying? That's just not a normal. Um, it's just not a normal. <laughs> what field. would you say? A normal what? A normal field? Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, we're not supposed to be exposed to stuff like that, but there's a need for it, and we have to have people to do it. So, yeah. Yes. And, um, it's, I'm, I'm, I, as a matter of fact, I, my, I have a second book that I'm, like I mentioned before that I'm focusing and writing more on the paranormal experiences that have happened to me. Now, there are many in the industry, um, in all capacities of law enforcement, medical, Funeral directors, EMTs, uh, the different um, churches, denominations, religions that don't ever talk about it. Um, they don't believe in it. It's never happened to them. But it's interesting that I, it's such a taboo subject, death is. It's interesting, though, now that I've been doing these videos, and I'm just bringing up TikTok again because I've been pretty active with putting videos on there, um, people that are coming forward that are thanking me for talking about it, and then they're they're sharing their experiences, and it's been every every different profession from you know people that aren't in the death industry, but people that are in the death industry. Nurses, a lot, every, you know, people, they don't want to talk about it because they're afraid that they're going to be labeled as crazy, right? And I'm sure people do, some people will think, wow, you know, it really finally affected her. But I can't deny what I've witnessed and experienced and I continue to. And I might have really doubted myself years ago, but my sons, as we've talked about before, they were also experiencing. I was going to tell you if I can go back to when I mentioned about the first paranormal experience where the man was angry floating above my head and then he shot across the room. Yeah, yeah. We I meant to go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well I I never said anything to my sons, but then uh, a couple of years later we moved to another home and we moved and uh it was a three level. And my oldest son now he would have been back in he was just out of high school and he was going up to the be- his bedroom, but he didn't turn the hall light on. <laughs> he said that, and I'm laughing again. It wasn't funny. I would have had a heart attack, but he was going up the stairs and he told me that there was this really uh, ugly, mean looking face man on the top of the stairs. His reaction was to punch out at it, at him, the, the face which of course went through it 
and then he dissipated. But I don't know if it was that spirit that followed. So if you're not used to it, it's it's pretty frightening. It is frightening. I mean, it's very yeah. frightening. Um, let me ask you something. Has, has anyone, well, Lone, let me ask you this. Does it always happen in your house, like these paranormal things, or do you have things happen outside your house as well? The only thing that's followed me, uh, things that follow me are not the actual spirits, but where um, I'll get this smell of smoke, cigarette smoke. I don't smoke. Really very strong. And I, it gets to the point where I'll put my shirt, whatever I'm wearing, over my nose and my mouth. And then I've left. I, I've uh, gone out to my car and driven to wherever I'm going to go thinking, oh, I want, can't wait to get some fresh air. And it follows me. It's in the car. And then I open the windows. And it's like, I can still smell it. <laughs> and then it goes away. But I have not, no, I have not uh, seen spirits outside of all of the homes that I've lived in. My son was telling me just a couple of weeks ago that <laughs> they were in bed and um, his fiance said, I just felt something sit on the bed and he felt it too, but he didn't want to scare her more. And he said, Oh, I don't think so. But he said, yeah, he felt something sit down on his bed. So they've still got things going on. Really? My son, <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Um, there's two more things I want to ask you about here real quick. Okay. One of them is the brain. This is it. What in the world oh. is this one about? Oh, that one was tough. Yeah. That was the, the um, college student. Mm -hmm. What happened there? He uh, had been out a night of drinking with his friends. He was like four times the legal limit. And um, they went back to their, I guess you'd call it a frat home. I don't know if it was a frat home, but it was, you know, a house, a rental home that they lived in to continue the partying. And he, uh, and I don't know why a college student would have a shotgun with him, but um, he pulled out this shotgun and he was waving it around. He just started talking, not making sense, right? And his friends were telling him to put that gun down, put that gun down. And he wasn't in his right frame of mind. And they followed him as he went up to his bedroom. He put the gun under his chin, pulled the, and you know, pulled the trigger. And uh, that took his head off. And so that I, was your, that was your call. That was my call. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. And of course with the, the, and I don't really, I'm not really good on describing weapons, guns. I just know it was a high powered rifle or a shotgun. I don't remember. And, but it was, it was messy. And so when I got there, he had pretty much bled out, but he only had about like his chin. And it's hard reliving this because I'm visualizing, but his brain had, uh, parts of his brain were um, scattered, but most, uh, most of his brain had landed on his bed. And so I, had to peel it off of his comforter, which was cooling down. And it was, you know, I just remember peeling it off of his blanket. And of course I had my gloves on and holding this brain in my hands and looking down at this young man that would have had his whole life in front of him. And then looking at this brain and thinking this, brain belongs to this poor soul laying on the floor and he's never going to get married. He's never going to have children. His parents, uh, we have to tell his parents and just how devastating that's going to be. And it was just because of uh, drinking the alcohol 
It was it was very surreal. Was he suicidal? Not if, if I can recall the case. No, I don't think so. It was just he just it was alcohol. He was so out of it. I don't think he knew what he was doing. That is. Uh, I'm assuming you just you were picking up parts of his brain for. You know, you guys, I mean, there's a cleanup, actual cleanup crew that comes in after you guys leave a crime scene. That's not something you guys do, right? That's something totally separate from what No, we don't do. do that. No, we don't do that. However, I'm going to, and again, I'm going to speak for myself. You're going to pick up as much of the human remains as you can because of the respect for the decedent. That's, that's part of them. And of course, you're not going to, you know, you're just not going to leave any of that behind that you can salvage and and put with the body. Wow. It's, it's, you know, it's out of respect and it's part of the uh, the case and the body. It must go with it's part of that person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that had to be rough. I don't know how you do it, really. I just... I'm, I'm, I'm picturing it as you're talking and I don't, I just mm-hmm. couldn't do it. I, I really couldn't do it. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a service well, that's needed. And you know what? I do remember seeing years ago, a uh, program, I think it's the LA, they follow the LA corners office around mm-hmm. and they get tons of calls, just outrageous number of calls oh, all day, every day, 24 hours a day, hundreds of people in the, in the county every day. They get called yeah. out on so some of that stuff is pretty, it's pretty bad. I, I tell you what, through those years of being a deputy coroner, I have such a respect and appreciation for my life and every breath that I take. And I don't take anything for granted every morning that I wake up. I, and you know, everybody gets stressed out and they get, tired of their jobs and feel like, you know, bored and things are mundane, but I will stop and outside and I will look up and watch the rain fall from the sky. And I'll take deep breaths and smell the, the fresh earth from the rain or listen to the birds. You know, I know it sounds hokey and cliche, but I had too many years that I went on calls where someone was in the middle of their everyday life and you're there looking at them. Their life has ended. They thought that they were going they were in the middle of making their lunch or, you know, for whatever they were doing during the day. You just never know when your last moment is. You've got your date of birth and you have your date of death and everything in between is like uh, a canvas, an open canvas, blank canvas. And whether you want to paint it as colorful as you want or as black and white, paint that canvas, leave your footprints, um, love your family. Don't ever take anything for granted. Don't ever go to bed angry and be kind to each other and be respectful to the spirits. And again, this is my opinion. This is how I look at life. And embrace every moment that you have. And I do believe that once we we pass away, we die, that our, we leave our bodies behind and our soul and our energy continues on. And uh, there's just so much more. Well, I was going to ask you that. Did you believe in life after death before you started having paranormal experiences? I... Didn't even watch the last scary movie that I shouldn't say scary, but the last horror terror movie that I watched was The Exorcist, if that tells you anything. I didn't I was too afraid of anything with death or because we'd had tragedy in our family. I had an uncle that was murdered, but um, and another one that um, ultimately it took it ended up he lost his life. But um I did not, I believe I was raised Catholic. And so it was, you know, be a good person. You're either going to go to heaven or hell. Through the years of being a deputy coroner, and I am religious, but I'm also spiritual. I can't deny that there's so much more. I also had the honor of caring for my mom the last six months of her life because my dad had passed away and she was either a nursing home 
or, um, you know, she couldn't be on her own. And I had promised my parents years prior, they'd said they never wanted to, and this is just their, what was their wishes. They never wanted to be in a nursing home if they didn't have to. And so I made that promise with them. If it was possible, I was going to do what I could. And I kept that promise for my mom. So I actually, for the first time in my life, experienced uh, active dying and was with her until she took her last, last breath. And the things that I experienced with her and watching her experience, the ancestors that came for her, the, the people that had passed, our loved ones that were in the room with us that she'd be talking to and telling me they were there. And um, it was just such a beautiful thing. The night before she passed away, a hospital bed had been brought in. Again, she was from Ireland. And I crawled into the bed next to her and I was singing Irish ballads to her and um, playing the tin whistle. I can only play one song, but it was Amazing Grace. And the smell of peat, if you've ever been overseas or over, you know, the Great Britain, Ireland area, they used to burn the bog, the peat in the fireplace for heat. And Mm -hmm. there was this, this it was one of it's I love that smell. It just reminds me of my childhood. But that scent became so strong in that room. I knew that my ancestors were there. And she had such a beautiful, peaceful transition when she passed. I have no I have no doubt in my mind that there is so much more. It was beautiful. And I could feel the ancestors. That is great. You know what mm-hmm. I love? What you what you said about it being an honor to take care of your mother. Um, oh, I don't believe in putting your parents in a nursing home. I mean, I, I was with my mother to the end and I wanted yeah. her to live out uh, her last day with every bit of dignity and respect that she deserves. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. I love how it is an honor. It is truly an honor to give back to your parents that have given their life taking care of you. Absolutely. Yes. It was very emotionally um, difficult because it was sad. I mean, you don't want your you don't want to lose your loved ones. And sometimes that's selfish on your part because they might they're ready to go. They might be ready to go, you know, and uh, yes. Treat them with dignity and respect. And they, like you said, they've cared for us. They brought us into the world. They they nurtured and cared for us. I had one night that she became so weak. um, She needed help getting into the bed from the wheelchair. And I crawled up on the bed and I, um, you know, put my legs, spread my legs apart. And then she sat down on the bed and I pulled her up, her back towards me sitting, right? Pulled her up to my chest. And she was just weak from that. And we had our arms arms crossed over each other. And she put her head on my chest and um, I held her. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it was beautiful. It was like she'd held me as a child. And it was full circle. I was holding her and I was going to be there for her. Thank you very much for sharing that beautiful memory. Thank you. Well, Donna, I have uh, enjoyed talking to you. Your book is called I've Seen Dead People, Diary of a Deputy Corner. And that is available on Amazon. I want you to tell my listeners where they can um, find more information about you or anything else you may be working on. Thank you so much. First off, thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure. And you can find my book in hardcover, paperback, e-reader, large print on Amazon. You can also get it uh, in audio through Tantor. Tantor. And um, there was also a screenplay adaption written for a feature film. Now, the book is under Jongler Publishing. My publisher is Gary Revel, and uh, screenwriters are Frank Burmaster, Jeff Holm. He is the director of the film. They've been speaking with um, A-list actors, hopefully fulfilling some of the roles. I'm also on TikTok under Deputy Donna Crazy Corner. 
I am on um, Twitter as Deputy Donna and also Instagram. I haven't been as active on Instagram. I'm on Facebook, either under I've Seen Dead People, Diary of a Deputy Coroner. And also I have a group called uh, just um, Delightful Deputy Donna, Crazy Coroner, which is just bringing people together and you talk about death and spirits and not the gory, but, you know, just beautiful things and interesting things about death and dying and afterlife. And I'm also in the process of writing my second book, which is the series to the second uh, or the series to I've Seen Dead People. And it is going to be called I Am Not Alone which is a continuation with the paranormal activity and experiences that I've been going through. And, and I definitely plan to have you back for that. And I hope that you'll, you know, keep me in the loop about, about the progress. And then right before it comes out, you know, you touch base with me and I'll get you back on the show. Okay. I would love that. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Absolutely. Many blessings to you, Donna. And I really appreciate your time. And to you as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I invite you to follow my other podcast, Mysterious Radio. Please share this show with others that are interested in the paranormal. I want to give a special thanks to our co-creator and executive producer, Kim Kyle, who brought this show to you today. And working hard behind the scenes, our team of four... I want to thank them as well. I am your host, K-Town, and you're listening to Paranormal Fears. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.